Well, good morning, and welcome to West Hills. I like that jazzy uh, rendition there of It Is Well. Um, foul that away. We're going to come back to that at the end. Uh, my name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills, and uh, on behalf of our staff and elders and, and others, our church family, uh, especially if you're new, I know we've got a lot of new folks that I got to meet this morning. Um, we're so glad you're here, and um, as uh, Scott already said, uh, we think that and hope and pray that you'll find that um, when you're here with us, uh, you know, your family, and um, so we're so honored that you're here. Um, I want to ask you to, to begin our theme for this morning. What was the last thing you celebrated? Anybody? What was the last thing you celebrated? Brian's celebrating his birthday. Anybody else birthday recently? Any anniversaries here recently? Us? 35th, congratulations. Uh, it's fitting that we're, we're talking about, um, you know, celebration this morning as Tim made the uh, announcement reminder again. Not only is this not just our 50-year anniversary party here next month. Not only is it not just a fall picnic, okay? This is, I want to be clear. Um, it, it, when, we're, when everybody is here, we run like 200 people at West Hills, and we're planning for like 400, all right? So that means everybody here has to bring a friend to this, to this party, or else we're throwing away a lot of food. We're, I, I'll tell you, we, we won't send it home with you. That's, that's what I'm going to say. We're, we're going to throw the food away unless you bring enough people to eat it all, all right? That's what we're going to do. That will hopefully incentivize you to, to bring people, um, but it's going to be awesome. Uh, come at 1030 for that worship service, like Tim said, really special time. And then at 12, that's when, you know, we'll fit 250 in here and pack it at 1030 and then bring, bring your friends even just for the picnic will be great. Um, but but what, what do we celebrate? We celebrate anniversaries and graduations, retirement. Um, I know f- for us, we went to uh, the Cardinals game last week, and I can tell you what uh, my daughter celebrated. She didn't know she was going to be in the service today. Elle, did you know you're going to be on the screen today? Daddy's got a picture of you? Because um, Ellery celebrates Fred Bird. That is... That is what Ellery, Ellery celebrates when we go to the games. That's her favorite. Um, and so now I've got to buy a Fred Bird costume just to, you know, make her half as happy as when we go to the Cardinals games. Uh, and, and then Paul DeYoung hits a walk-off homer in the ninth, and everybody goes crazy, and they shoot off the fireworks, and she freaks out and cries. And so <laughs> one man's celebration is another little girl's nightmare. But, um, but we're talking about celebration this morning, and we saw last week in the first half of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we saw this repentant community of these 5th century Jerusalemites who had just finished rebuilding the city wall. They gathered together at the commissioning ceremony to listen to Ezra the priest read aloud from the book of the law for 9 or 10 hours, and they're moved to tears. And this morning, in the second half of chapter 8, what we're going to see is Nehemiah is going to actually reprove them. He's actually going to correct them and say, no, 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 not, not tears, not weeping, but joy. He's going to say celebration. Celebration. It's time to party. And just as last week we, we considered that beautiful scene of them reading from God's word together as, as a model for what we ought to do together. And we, we said, you know what, we just want to take some time uh, last week to just 
zoom out for a minute and, and read and hear, listen attentively to the big picture overarching story of the Bible, of Scripture, of God's Word together and be moved, so too this morning I want to suggest that the second half of chapter 8 can also serve as a model for us, this time as an example of celebration. And specifically, to help us come to, to realize what it is that I think God wants to teach us about not only how we celebrate, but why we celebrate, um, and what is worth celebrating. And so, specifically, I want to point to four reasons this morning for celebration that I see arising out of this text in Nehemiah 8, uh, verses 9 through, 12, uh, 9 through 18. So, if you would, without further ado, if you would stand with me as you're able to, um, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, and um, I will read Nehemiah 8, 9 through 18 for us, if you want to follow along on the screen or find it in, in your own Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of a frame. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was solemn assembly, according to the rule. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we thank you uh, that you give us guidance, instruction, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path to teach us not only how to fight the enemy, not only how to... Um, pay attention and appreciate your word, but how to celebrate. Uh, Father, we come here this morning with uh, mixed, varied hearts. Some of us come and celebration is easy for us, and some of us come with heavy hearts this morning. And so, Father, I pray that through the unpacking of your truth this morning and your word, that you would help um, reshape and mold all of our hearts uh, more and more into uh, the heart that your son Jesus had, um, 
both of mourning and of celebration. We know that your word tells us there's a time for everything, and yet this morning um, we're going to be taught what it means to celebrate and why we can celebrate in all circumstances. And so, Father, would you help us do that this morning? We'll give you the honor and the glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, Reason number one that we celebrate, the first and foremost, most important reason biblically that we celebrate is because of the gospel. Even though you didn't hear the name Jesus in this passage, let me connect the dots for you. We rejoice because God saves us with his loving faithfulness. Look back at verses 9 through 12. It's a little ambiguous. It's a kind of weird exchange there in verses 9 through 12 that deserves some unpacking. It's not super clear. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. Let's actually start and back up to verse 8 together. In verse 8, we hear Ezra and the priests read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, what's going on there? I told you last week their reaction to the reading of the word was weeping, but I didn't tell you why they wept. So why are they weeping? There's at least a few possibilities that I see here. One is they might be crying for the same reason that you would be crying if I made you all stand up for the next 10 hours and read from Numbers and Deuteronomy. They could be crying um, out of pain. You know, my legs are falling asleep, Nehemiah. Can you wrap it up? Ezra, can you wrap it up? Um, This is, you know, really, we've got, we're only halfway through um, Numbers here. Maybe that's why they're crying, but I don't think that's why. Maybe they're crying for the same reason that some of you were actually crying last week when we read uh, the story and, and, and we just read from God's word and retold the story of redemption from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, maybe they are just so viscerally moved by the power and the goodness of God's word. And I think that explanation gets a little closer to what's going on here, but I think it still doesn't quite encapture it. And here's why, because if we look at the context clues, Nehemiah says in verse 9 that they weep and mourn. And then he says in verses 10 and 11, he exhorts them not to grieve. And then, of course, there's a simple fact that not to take anything away from the goodness of all of God's word and his law, but it is a little hard to imagine being moved to tears by the you know, power of numbers in, in Deuteronomy. And so I think that the better explanation, actually, for why they're crying here is that if, if, if we actually go back and, and get the sense of the word and understand the word in the way that they did in this passage, if we actually do that, I think you and I could actually go back and read the law for ourselves, even this morning, and, and be moved to tears of grief and of mourning. I think we should, if we really get what's going on here, as we come to realize the weight and the depth and the horror of our sin. That is why we read the law. That is why all of God's word is inspired and useful for teaching and reproof and correction, training and righteousness, because even the law has its place. It is, you know, we joke about it, but, but skipping over it when, when we're doing our Bible, you know, devotions and reading, we lose a part of the story. We lose a valuable part of the story. That is what we learn through God's word. The weight 
and the depth and the horror of our sin. God, you mean that when you say the wages of sin is death, like you actually mean it, like literal death, like this is how many sheep and goats and bulls are supposed to be slaughtered every year, every month, every day for my sin? just to make atonement, just to, so I can be reconciled back into relationship with you, just for us to have a relationship. That is what's supposed to happen. That should move us to tears of grief and mourning. And I think for Nehemiah's community in chapter eight, it's all starting to come into focus. They're realizing the, remi- the reminder that this is how seriously God treats our sin. That they're realizing that for the past 150 years now, while they've been living in exile, in Babylon without a temple to even attempt to, to make substitutionary atonement for their, for their sins. Leviticus 17, uh, 11, without the ability to make atonement for their sins on the altar, they're probably wondering, have we even been reconciled to God? I mean, by, has God by now, have all of our sins just piled up and our lack of sacrifices that he calls for, has God just forgotten us? Is a relationship with God even possible anymore? They're being reminded. They read the whole law. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 613 laws, commandments of the Torah, read aloud all at once. They're feeling the weight of it. They start making a list, right, of, yeah, that one I... I keep mostly, most of the time. That one, ooh, not so much. That's a law? I forgot about that. You know, and, and so they're making this list. And, and the, the failed to obey column is stacking up. 613. Remember, these are the same people that three chapters ago, Nehemiah had to get on to them for selling each other's kids into slavery. All right? That is why they're crying with grief and mourning. They're weeping out of fear, out of insecurity. Does God even love us anymore? Can God even love us anymore? Could, could God possibly forgive us? A holy, perfect God like this, could he, could he even love a people like us anymore? And what is the gospel, pre-gospel, pre-Christ, that Nehemiah shares with them? Not once, not twice, but three times in verses 9 through 12. He says, quit crying. Why? Because this day is holy to the Lord your God. Here's what I think he's saying there. I think he's saying this day isn't about you. He's saying it's not about your faithlessness. Because that's what they keep hearing over and over and over again with every law, all 613. I screwed up. I'm sinful. I'm unworthy. And Nehemiah essentially says, yeah, sure you are. Sure you did. Of course. But this isn't about you. This day is about God. This this is about his covenant faithfulness. How did David put it? Even even, 500 years before Ezra and Nehemiah came around, David says in Psalm 33, all God's work is done in faithfulness. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Or Psalm 119, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations or the the best of all, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture from Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
This is the good news that he reminds them of. I mean, after all, if we had to sum up the story of the Old Testament in just like a sentence, I think the overarching theme would be Israel sins, God saves. People screw up, God redeems. And Nehemiah says to them here this morning, take your eyes off yourself, O Israel, off your sin, off your shortcomings, and fix them on the Lord, his sufficiency, his salvation. What Paul says about God in 2 Timothy 2.13, this passage that I think I've maybe quoted every week for the last three weeks that I've preached, but it's so good, I'll keep quoting it. It was true when Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago. It was true 2,500 years ago when, when Ezra and Nehemiah's community needed to hear it. And it's true today, and some of us need to hear it, that if we are faithless, what? God remains faithful. And just to clarify for them and to hammer this home, Nehemiah reminds them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What a beautiful reminder. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so friends, I ask you today, how many of you come here weak this morning? No strength, tired. How many of you are sad, broken, brokenhearted? No joy of your own. You're hurting, you're wounded, The good news this morning is that there is a joy that comes from above, from outside this world, that transcends circumstances. There is a peace that surpasses all understanding. There is a hope that doesn't rest in the things of this world. And there is a strength that is made perfect in your weakness. And that joy and that peace and that hope and that strength can be yours this morning in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. The truth is that we are all weak. We are all broken. We are all wounded. There's only two types of people in this world, and they're both sick with a fatal spiritual illness. The difference is one lives in denial about their condition, and one desperately clings to the good physician for healing. But as we saw in chapter 6, Two weeks ago, the enemy, Satan, would love to keep us so focused on the first half of the gospel truth, on on our own sin, on ourselves, on our failures, our shortcomings, our unworthiness, our sinfulness. He would love to keep us so focused on that that we are unable to, to get outside ourselves, to look beyond ourselves and see the foot of the cross and to see the one who already paid for all of that. To, to hear his voice, that he means it when he says it is finished. To hear his promises again this morning. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan would love to keep us so focused on the first half of the gospel truth, as Keller puts it, that we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine that we forget the second half, that yeah, we are, but we're more loved than we ever dared hope for. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That while we are faithless, God remains faithful. That's good news. That's gospel. 
And friends, that is cause for celebration this morning. Yes, celebrate birthdays, celebrate anniversaries, celebrate the Cardinals' winning streak. But this, friends, nothing comes close to the celebration that ought to occur, that occurs in heaven. We, We hear in Scripture the angels are dancing. That is our cause for celebration, first and foremost, because of what Christ has done for us, we celebrate. Reason number two that we celebrate is because of Scripture. We celebrate because God guides us with his word. We hear uh, in verses 12 through 13 that all the people went their way to eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They can celebrate the good news, point number one, because it was declared to them. Point number two, through God's word. It's, they, they come to a proper understanding of the good news through scripture. And so what do they do? They turn around in verse 13, and on the second day of this building dedication ceremony, all the heads of households with the priests and the Levites come together to Ezra. Why? To study the words of the law. Once Ezra has, has explained the proper understanding, the good news of God's faithfulness to them, they rejoice And they come back the next day ready for more. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and they want more. Ten hours of numbers in Deuteronomy was not enough for these people. Now they want to study it. They want to apply it to their lives. They want to be immersed in it. They're experiencing firsthand for the first times for themselves the goodness of God's word. And as Jeremiah described it in chapter 15, he says, your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Or, or probably most famously, as David put it in Psalm 119, David's love letter back to God for Scripture, for God's love letter to us. He says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Lord, for I delight in it. Your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. I I find delight in your commandments, which I love. Your statutes have been my songs. I delight in your law. It's better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love your commandments above gold, fine gold. Your commandments are my delight. Oh, how I love your precepts. I rejoice at your word. My lips will pour forth praise for statutes. My tongue will sing of your word. There is a reason that the longest chapter in the entire Bible, 176 verses long, I read like a tenth of them, is all about the goodness of God's word. The the, the sweetness, the delightfulness, the wondrousness, the preciousness, the worthiness of rejoicing over of God's word. And so this morning I, I ask us, of all of God's gifts in your life, all of his good gifts, yes, your family, yes, your friends, your vocation, your church, do we realize, are we convicted? Do we live it out this morning? Does our, do our lives, do our quiet times bear witness that aside from Christ and the gospel, the word become flesh, the, the, the second reason to celebrate 
in our lives is the word of God. It is the, the second greatest cause for celebration. Our, our lamp, our light, the testimony of Christ, he says in John 5, the, who is our salvation, Romans 1, without which we would be totally and utterly lost in darkness. Friends, this is, this is worthy cause of celebration this morning. Praise God that he does not leave us in the dark. How many world religions, how many faiths, is there this sense of, I'm just not sure how good is good enough, and, 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 and there's just darkness about, I'm not sure, you know, there's this insecurity about eternal salvation. We, we have security, we have hope, we have salvation, and we know it because of God's word. This is good. This is worth celebrating. The meaning of life, who God is, who we are because of it what his will is for our lives, all these things, these essential truths that we're learning at the nine o'clock hour through the New City Catechism, we're teaching your kids and your students and hopefully you, we know it all because of God's word. We reorient our lives around it because it's not only true, but it's good. His word is good and it's worth reading and studying, listening attentively to, and understanding and giving our lives to. It's worth celebrating. Reason number three we celebrate is because of obedience. This one seems odd. Maybe you're, you're, you're seeing it in the text. You're like, obedience, that didn't jump out to me. God empowers us with his Holy Spirit for obedience. What do the people do right after they gather to Ezra to study the word in verse 13? We hear in verse 14, and they found it written in the law, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And so what do they do? Verse 16. So the people went out and brought branches and made booths for themselves. They read through God's word. Now they go back, they're studying it. They come to the law, Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43, where we hear God had commanded Moses and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days is the feast of booze to the Lord. And we've already heard at the end of chapter seven in Nehemiah that this just so happens to be the seventh month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar. And specifically in chapter eight, verse 13, it says that it's the second day of the month of Tishri. But they figure, well, you know what? That's the second day. God said celebrate on the 15th day, but you know what? We haven't celebrated this holiday for a thousand years since Joshua, so why wait another two weeks, much less another minute? They drop everything immediately. and so we're not gonna just obey the, the letter of the law. We're gonna obey the spirit of the law. Like, we wanna celebrate. And so immediately they obey the word. They drop what they're doing. They venture outside the city walls. They spend all day chopping down these heavy branches. They lug them back all the way into the city. They hoist them up on their roofs and they build these makeshift useless booths, tents, that they don't even need because they just got done building houses. And they do all of this. Why? Why do they build for 52 days straight without taking a break, homeless, finish the wall, and before they stop to celebrate, spend another week building their houses. We, we heard, by the way, in chapter 7, verse 4, no house had been built. And then at the end of chapter 7, verse 73, it says, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. There's a week gap there in the scripture. So there's a week where they are building all day, every day, their houses, and now they've got houses. And without taking a break, they drop everything, they go out, and they build these 
practically useless, spiritually significant huts. Why? What, what, how do you explain that? The text doesn't say it, in, in, specifically here in chapter 8, but I think God makes it clear elsewhere in Scripture that that kind of crazy, fierce obedience to God's word is never driven by human effort alone, but rather it must be enabled and empowered by God himself through the intervening work of his Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And anything good that we do is only in and through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Obedience, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's probably a whole nother sermon that we could preach there about the relationship between working out our own salvation and God's doing it through his spirit. But the takeaway for us this morning is that any work that we're called to do is all for naught in the absence of God's empowering work through his Holy Spirit, to actually effectuate and bring about our obedience. And even in the Old Testament, we have heard God say, through the prophet Zechariah, he says, uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Pop quiz, who was Zerubbabel? We talked about him in chapter one. Who's Zerubbabel? What did he do? Anybody? All right. We're going to go home. We're going to study our word now because now you know how important it is. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. 80 years before, 80 years before Nehemiah, Zerubbabel led the first wave of exiles home back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this is what God says through the prophet Zechariah. You're not going to do it by power or by your strength, by your might. You're going to do it by my spirit. That's how I'm going to accomplish it. And so I ask you this morning, friends, for us, what impossible, crazy act of obedience from your life can you point to this morning and say, that's not me. That was God. God has to empower me through his Holy Spirit to do that. I would love to hear more about the story of Brian and Shoma and how they got called to the mission field in Japan. I suspect it wasn't their life plan when they were like four or five years old. You know, they set their minds to it as little kids. I suspect they would say, that was God. God opened those doors. God knit that plan together. We never could have come dream, dream this up. I know stories of, of believers in our church family right here at West Hills who have walked away from comfortable jobs and comfortable paychecks into great unknowns and great uncertainty because God put a vision and a calling on your heart and began opening doors that you couldn't ignore. And you said, okay, God, I'm going to trust that this is of you. I'm going to step out in faith, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient to the leading and empowering of your Holy Spirit. And so I ask you, what is it for you this morning? Maybe this morning it's the simple act of faith itself. Maybe it is your presence here this morning. Maybe your crazy, unexplainable act of obedience is simply you being here at church. It's your refusal to give up and lose hope in the good promises of God despite all evidence to the contrary. For some of you, you might feel like God has given up on you. Every bone in your body wants to do the same. But the tiny voice in the back of your head and your heart says, hold on. 
and you know that the power to hold on can't come from you anymore. It has to come from him. And so you're clinging to him in faith. Not your own faith, but his faith. It's got to be his faith and faithfulness to even give you the faith to hold on to him. And you're doing that this morning. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, take heart. Be encouraged. Celebrate. You can celebrate this morning because we serve a God who not only makes his will known, point number two, through his word, but who actually empowers us to live it out, point number three. And insofar as God knows what is best for us, and he is at work in us to accomplish his will for us through our sanctification and obedience that is empowered by his own all-powerful, all-loving spirit, that is cause for great joy. So we celebrate together this morning. And lastly, reason number four that we celebrate is that God gives us life. God blesses us with his triumphs and his sorrows. We see this last point more subtly in uh, Nehemiah 8. And I think to actually appreciate it, we need to appreciate something about the meaning of Sukkot, the uh, festival of booths that they're celebrating here in the first place. See, if we look back to Leviticus 23 again, we find that there are two reasons that the Lord commanded them to celebrate And observe this festival of booths. First, he says in verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord. So Sukkot was a celebration of the harvest. It was observed in order to thank God for all of the preceding year's provisions. And yet, we can't forget, having read Nehemiah 1 through 7, that in chapter 5, Nehemiah told us that they've been in the middle of a great famine. And we don't ever hear anything between verses, chap, uh, chapters 5 and 8 about that changing. They are in the middle of a famine, and yet they choose this year of all years to celebrate the harvest that they don't even have, to reinstitute the Feast of Booze. They're probably not even feasting. I don't know what they're eating, but they're feasting on the Spirit, right? <laughs> you shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from me, they're feasting on the spirit and on God's word. Don't even have any food to eat, but they're celebrating. The second reason, according to Leviticus 23, to observe this holiday, was uh, uh, Moses tells us in verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, basically, God wants to make sure that his people not only remember his saving work and leading them out of slavery, but he doesn't want them to get so comfortable in this cushy land of milk and honey that they forget about their dependency on him, their need to rely on him for every breath they breathe. He wants to remind them, hey, there was a time when you were homeless and you were forced to depend on me, and in many ways as a people in that wilderness phase, yeah, you send a lot, but in many ways, I mean, I came down visibly in the, in the cloud of pillar of smoke and fire, and we talked. I mean, in many ways, that was when you were closest to me as a people, was through the difficult time, when you were homeless. And he says, don't forget that. And the irony here in Nehemiah 8 is that the people now have houses. They have newly, freshly built houses They don't even need these booze. They build them on top of their houses, and it's ridiculous. And if the other neighboring people groups and tribes and whatever were looking over the city walls of Jerusalem, they would be like, what in the heck is going on in there? And I think the point in all of it 
for us this morning is that in any circumstance, whether you are homeless with a bountiful harvest, like in Moses' day, or you've got a freshly constructed, proud new homeowner in the middle of a famine, like in Nehemiah's day, whether you're either or both, whether you're homeless and hungry or you're comfortable and full, being God's people means learning to celebrate in every circumstance. It means, as Paul put it in Philippians 4, we come to say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul doesn't use that favorite memory verse of pop stars and athletes to invoke the power of positive thinking to make an impossible game-winning shot or to sell a bunch of records. He is talking about the kind of strength that you need to be joyful and to celebrate no matter what in life. Because life will throw a lot at you. If it hasn't yet, just wait long enough, and it will. Paul's talking about in context real strength, real joy that is not circumstance-driven fleeting happiness. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about who we love. Remember when Jesus challenged his disciples, he said, if you love your friends, of what benefit is that to you? Hitler loved his friends. Good for you. He says, they're going to know you're my disciples because you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. And I think there's a similar challenge for us here in Nehemiah 8 and in this story of these people celebrating a feast in the middle of a famine. If we only celebrate our blessings in the good times, friends, how are you any different than your atheist neighbor or coworker? I mean, Larry, who I meet with at Starbucks, my atheist friend down there, and, and I talk, he celebrates when things are good. People do that. God's people celebrate when it's hard the triumphs and the sorrows. And by the way, please note the intentional wording of, of what I put there, his triumphs and his sorrows. Scripture makes it abundantly clear. This is, this is the good news and the promise we cling to, that God is sovereign over all of life. It's not like God is duking it out with Satan and sometimes God wins and good things happen to us and sometimes Satan wins. No, God is sovereign over all of it. Remember, Satan had to come to, to God to get permission to tempt Job. Jesus said, Satan wants to sift you, Peter. They, he's always got to come to God. In, in both cases, good and in bad and in difficulty, it's always good. It's always for our good ultimately in the end. So we know that nothing happens that catches our God off guard. Like, whoa, what? That just happened to him? I guess I better fix it. God is not surprised. The question for us is, have we learned to be joyful? Have we learned to worship? Have we learned to celebrate in the good times and the bad? And to say with Paul, in whatever circumstance, I am content. To say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This morning, um, this past week, two weeks, we've celebrated as a church uh, the births and the life of um, two baby uh, boys to our church family. One is Jameson Sandhouse, who must have just ducked out for a snack. He's somewhere around here. You'll see him. And one is Maverick Brenton, 
who um, hopes to go home today from the hospital. But if you haven't been following on the Facebook page, uh, Melanie and Jason just had um, their second little boy, Maverick, who was born with trisomy 13, and the average life expectancy is anywhere between a day and a month. And you will probably never meet him. And what it means to be a follower of God is in the face of that kind of pain and heartache and difficulty is to say with Job, in time, it's a process of grieving, but to come to say in time, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We celebrate because of the gospel. We celebrate because of the good news of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. That death doesn't have the final word. We celebrate because of scripture and because we know every promise of God holds true. We celebrate for obedience because God doesn't just give us a bunch of commandments and tell us to follow him. He gives us his Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to live him out. And we celebrate because he gives us life the good and the bad, the triumphs and the sorrows, the ups and the downs. And through it all, he is on the throne. He never leaves the throne. And he is good. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this morning because you are God and you are good. Father, we celebrate because you have given us a joy and a peace, a hope and a love and a promise that does not rest in anything of this world, in any circumstance that cannot be blown and tossed to and fro with the waves that are sure to come in this life, but that you have set our hope in Christ, and that our hope sits where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Father, we pray that this morning you would touch our hearts and make us more and more into a people who learn what it is to celebrate in every circumstance. In times of unbelievable blessing and prosperity, in times of unbelievable heartache and hurt. Because we know that through it all, you're still on the throne. And you're good, and you love us, and your promises are true, and you mean it when you say, I'm working all things together for good for those who are called according to my purpose. So Father, as we now turn and celebrate through song, we worship you. Would you give us that peace, that hope, that joy, that love, that blessed assurance to go out with us from this place that we might be a light to others who desperately need that kind of hope and peace. 
because it's not to be found in the world. Help us to be a light shining brightly for your gospel, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.